Okay. We're going to start off with a little meditation. So if you get comfortable and uh, close your eyes. Probably all of you have uh, dipped your hands into some snow-fed stream at some time and drunk of that crisp, clear water that's we have so much of it here in Colorado. Uh, I wish you would uh, just sort of picture yourself for a moment high on some very lovely mountain. It's quite still and quiet except for all the lovely sounds that are around you. Maybe a cricket that hasn't gone to sleep. Maybe the song of a grosbeak. And you see before you, farmed in the rocks, a crystal clear spring-fed pond, perfect in its symmetry. Symmetry, so perfect in its symmetry that possibly it reminds you of one of those uh, reflecting pools at a at a world's fair. The water is as still and as pure as glass, and it overflows very, very silently. In fact, you almost have to. Give it special attention to see that it gently overflows the sides of its natural circle. And there's this profusion of flora, wildflowers and beautiful grasses and flowering shrubs. And as you look at it, you notice how perfectly it reflects the sun. And you realize that that is just how perfectly your mind reflects God when it is still. And so for just a moment, look over this past week and see if there is anything that still agitates your mind. That's happened this morning or this last week or even further back. Is there anything at work? Is there anything to do with money? Is there anything to do with the death? Or health? Or some possession? Or some course of things in your life? Is there anything that still agitates, that still rapid in your mind because you want your mind to become just like that pool you want it to become as still as glass pure and perfect so that it can reflect 
the light of heaven. And notice that as you turn your gaze on any of these upsets, any foreboding, notice how instantly it quiets itself if you do not ask a single question, but merely look upon it. And so do that now. Look upon the contents of your mind. Let it come to rest. Let the surface and the depths of your mind become as still and as calm as a perfect pool of water. And for just a moment, reflect all the glory and all the happiness and all the peace and all the health and all the love that is yours. And see that there is absolutely no effort in this process. You let go and you are just like God. This morning's reading is from page 361 of the text of A Course in Miracles. Everyone has experienced what he would call a sense of being transported beyond himself. This feeling of liberation far exceeds the dream of freedom sometimes hoped for in special relationships. It is a sense of actual escape from limitations. If you will consider what this transportation really entails, you will realize that it is a sudden unawareness of the body and a joining of yourself and something else in which your mind enlarges to encompass it. It becomes part of you as you unite with it, and both become whole as neither is perceived as separate. What really happens is that you have given up the illusion of a limited awareness and lost your fear of union. The love that instantly replaces it extends to what has freed you and unites with it. And while this lasts, you are not uncertain of your identity and would not limit it. You have escaped from fear to peace, asking no questions of reality but merely accepting it. You have accepted this instead of the body and have let yourself be one with something beyond it simply by not letting your mind be limited by it. This can occur regardless of the physical distance that seems to be between you and what you join, of your respective positions in space, and of your difference in size and seeming quality. Time is not relevant. It can occur with something past, present, or anticipated. The something can be anything and anywhere. A sound, a sight, a thought, a memory, and even a general idea without specific reference. Yet in every case, you join it without reservation because you love it and would be with it. 
And so you rush to meet it, letting your limits melt away, suspending all the laws your body obeys and gently setting them aside. There is no violence at all in this escape. The body is not attacked, but simply properly perceived. It does not limit you merely because you would not have it so. You are not really lifted out of it. It cannot contain you. You go where you would be, gaining, not losing a sense of self. In these instances of release from physical restrictions, you experience much of what happens in the holy instant. The lifting of the barriers of time and space, the sudden experience of peace and joy, and above all, the lack of awareness of the body and of the questioning whether or not all this is possible. It is possible because you want it. The sudden expansion of awareness that takes place with your desire for it is the irresistible appeal the holy instant holds. It calls to you to be yourself within its safe embrace. There are the laws of limit lifted for you to welcome you to openness of mind and freedom. Come to this place of refuge where you can be yourself in peace, not through destruction, not through a breaking out, but merely by a quiet melting in. For peace will join you there simply because you have been willing to let go the limits you have placed upon love and joined it where it is and where it led you in answer to its gentle call to be at peace. The last several Sundays we've covered uh, some rather difficult concepts and I thought maybe although this is a little sooner than we usually would have it that we might have a question and answer period this morning and as usual I'll begin with the few questions that were asked prior to the service and then we'll open it up a little bit and uh, so if you'd like to be thinking of anything you would want us to discuss this morning. Um, the first question, someone was talking to me this last week about chronic problems. We've, we've discussed that recently. As a matter of fact, we discussed it last Sunday. And uh, this woman said that her house was always in a mess. This was her chronic problem. Have you? I'm, many of you, are, many of you are probably great cooks. Uh, I am not a great cook. Gail is a great cook, uh, but great cooks I've noticed leave a trail of neatness behind them <laughs> as they go through the kitchen. When I get through, the kitchen looks like a blender drink, <laughs> and it takes me about twice as long to get through. And I'm thinking. As I go along, I haven't got time to put the butter back. I haven't got time to clean out this dish. I haven't and so forth. The guests will be here in seven minutes. <laughs> uh, and uh, it occurred to me 
uh, and to Gail some time back and trying to put into practice this concept, which cannot be thought about. It's just one of those things that has to sort of rest gently in your heart or else it just becomes extre an extremely confusing concept. This concept that we leave the world undisturbed, that we need do nothing, that there is no action to take within the world. It's a very, very gentle concept. But in thinking about this particular question, I saw how exactly the same thing was true. As we live in our house and as we go about our daily routine, we either leave a trail of mess or a trail of neatness behind us. In other words, we either leave the world undisturbed or we are constantly disturbing everything. And in concentrating on that, I've noticed how it is a hundred little decisions that put a house in physical turmoil, just as it is a thousand little decisions that put a relationship in turmoil or put our finances in turmoil. Little procrastinations, little waitings, little fears that go unchallenged, little uh, conflicts of purpose, should I do this or should I do that, and so nothing is quite ever done. A great deal of worry rather than action, and so we, we don't take care of the things that we could take care of. Instead, we worry a great deal about all the things that we aren't doing. A tremendous amount of time is spent doing that. Uh, our laundry room is an example of that. Uh, we, uh, uh, we're, we're going to have a, a child in three or four weeks, little baby, and uh, Gail has wanted me to get the laundry room cleaned up. I know that what she thinks is that if we ever set the baby down in the laundry room, <laughs> it will take us two weeks to find it, you know. <laughs> so. We've made a lot of progress ever since we began noticing this uh, a number of months ago. And although there is the laundry room and there is the kitchen, uh, uh, when I'm in charge of it, uh, Still, there has been a gentle transformation. And the interesting thing to me is that there hasn't been much overt attack on the house. It isn't as if we said, spring cleaning, and then everything came out of the closets and the vacuum cleaners and everything. It isn't as if there was some marshalling of forces uh, against uh, uh, the demon of, of uh, mess or something. But what was happening was a little gentle correction as we went about our day. And so uh, instead of taking something off and laying it down, you take something off and you put it in the closet and so forth. Now, the only reason I mention that, because I know all of you have seen this example. I know, you, I know you've all seen people. Now, of course, there, the ego can misuse that. And, and I know you've been at people's houses where, uh, of course, none of you smoke. But back in the old days when... when uh, you did smoke before you started coming to the dispensable church. Um, there were people would grab their ashtray out, you know, you'd flip it once and it'd be rushed off and as you sat there. So you would be so you'd actually be cleaned up under as you're at somebody <laughs> as you're at somebody's house. And of course this was this is based on fear. This is a, a, an appearances for appearances sake. 
kind of fear. And so, of course, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with this very gentle concept of leaving the world undisturbed, of taking no action, of never countering attack, of turning the other cheek, but not in the sense that we lay down like a doormat, but in the sense that we absorb anything that the ego has to throw at us because we see how meaningless it is, and we walk gently on and we continue our work of blessing the people around us. And it occurred to me that this was a good question to be asked because this is a, a nice place to begin practicing it in the home because you can see so clearly how these things work. If you can see how it works in your home, then you can begin to see how it works with your health, how it works with your relationships, how it works with your finances, and everything else in, in life. How there is no sudden crisis, there is an accumulation that comes through a number of little decisions. And that's why walking through the day in peace does it all. And going about your house in peace leaves a peaceful wake behind you. It leaves a peaceful house if a peaceful person goes through it during the day. The house is left in peace. Another question. A man called up his girlfriend. His lady, whatever. I don't, what is the term now? Uh, and uh, I'm sure it is not girlfriend. Uh, and his little woman. <laughs> and uh, he felt very, very badly uh, after the conversation and didn't know why. And uh, so we talked about this. And the answer, I think, to this kind of question, did I make a mistake, is that we handle the question instead of trying to answer it. This is a very, very happy lesson to learn. This world is made up of questions that cannot be answered. That's one way of looking at the world. Everything you see with your body's eyes, everything that has ever taken place or ever will take place in this world is an answerless question. It is a seeking that will not be found. It is not a tragedy. It is just nonsense. And so we fill our mind being in the world with a great deal of nonsense. And this nonsense takes place in the forms of questions. For example, last Sunday, <laughs> uh, I started talking about a peanut patty that came from Lubbock, Texas. It is truly a magnificent peanut patty. <laughs> but in the course of things, I made a comment about Lubbock. Now, so <laughs> I was thinking about this. Someone said, I too am from Lubbock. I'm not going to repeat the comment because we've already deleted it once. And <laughs> don't want to do it. So um, uh, I thought that it was uh, it was such an an obvious obviously uh, kidding comment that no one could take offense to it. But as I went through the week, it's not that anyone took offense. 
it's that I began questioning myself. Should I leave in that comment about Lubbock? And I started thinking of all the people who came from Lubbock. And there are a lot of wonderful singers and entertainers and everything else that we know. There's even a song, as you know, about Lubbock in your rearview mirror and that kind of thing. And uh, so, of course, there was no <laughs> there was no answer to the question. It was no. I mean, I I could reason it a hundred different ways. And then, of course, I saw the obvious. I didn't need to answer the question. It's impossible to answer that kind of question. What I need to do is to put the question to rest. How do I put the question to rest? I take the comment out of the sermon. That's all I do. So that takes it. Uh, David does it, actually. <laughs> I call up David and David takes it out of there. Um, Lubbock, incidentally, so no, so I haven't made the same mistake. Lubbock just happens to be in a most remarkable part of the country. You know, so you know, uh, I'm from Texas, and uh, I love driving through that part of the country because we've got mule shoe and you've got level land and you've got Claude. Of course, you know, I went to ministerial school in New Claude, Texas. Uh, I thought that there should be a new Claude. I mean, we've got New York and New Orleans and New. <laughs> there's got to be a new Claude. So this is where I I got my uh, DD, Doctor of Dispensability. <laughs> and, uh, but when I was um, a counselor at uh, Leelanau Schools in Michigan, guidance counselor, uh, the boys up there had never seen. Texas, and they would go into rapturous descriptions of what Texas must be like. And they said, gosh, it must just be the most beautiful. I understand that you can see forever that nothing blocks your vision. I had never, I had never looked on level land and Claude and so forth in that way. No. In addition to availing yourself of external remedies such as medicine and rest, what mental efforts should you make when you get sick? Actually, it's necessary. You know, I make a lot of uh, diarrhea analogies here at the Dispensable Church. Uh, the peace of God is more important than diarrhea. You've heard that one. I think last Sunday, no, a couple Sundays ago, I said the only thing that we can do without conflict is have a diarrhea attack. Now, because the symbolism is so essential to the dispensable church, it is, of course, necessary that I get sick uh, in that manner every once in a while. And so it's felt like it was about time to do that this last week. And uh, I indeed got sick. And... I had a number of other symptoms, too. Uh, it was a classy illness. I'm, that's what I'm telling you. This was a class. I had the works, do you see? So what do you do? You do nothing. That's what you do. You do not fight the sickness. And this is the mistake that almost everyone makes. Now, the person who's on a spiritual path makes it in a spiritual way. So the higher, what we call here the higher ego, meaning the part of the ego that now mimics truth and uses truth to uh, sow chaos, comes in. And we find ourselves doing mental battle. I know someone uh, who was uh, 
sick recently. Uh, and uh, a woman called this man. This, I, I'm not the person. A woman called this man uh, and found out uh, that the man was sick and immediately started giving the man a number of healing <clears throat> mental imageries. And when he got off the phone, he felt extremely anxious and didn't understand why. And in talking about it, what I said to him was that the reason that you felt anxious was that the premise of the conversation was that you were not supposed to be sick and this person was going to give you things to do so that you could stop being sick. And so now the ball is in your court. I'm talking like a politician now. The ball's on your side now. Um, and so you have to uh, rid yourself of the sickness. And you probably should be using these mental imageries. And you're not doing that. You're reading Agatha Christie, which is what I did. Oh, I have to tell you, let's see. Let's see let me just, I As a matter of fact, I brought my Agatha Christie book. <laughs> I mean, we have Course in Miracles, I want you to know, is not the only thing that we quote here. You see, what happened was I... I went to uh, Dr. Shaw after I... The sickness didn't last very long because I didn't fight it. I enjoyed it. I had remembered that Dr. Shaw had enjoyed his pneumonia. And so I said, well, if he can enjoy pneumonia, I can certainly enjoy this. And I said, well, how can I enjoy this? Because what you want to do is bring peace to your mind and peace to your body. And you see how fighting the illness does not do that? Of course, the body is a reflection of the mind. But the mistake that people make is that they're supposed to start some war within their mind, that they're supposed to begin some effort within their mind. Change nothing, because the truth is true. That is the key to the quick and easy way to awakening, to enlightenment, to happiness, to heaven, to whatever you wish to call this state that we will eventually arrive in, in this world in which we can go through a single day in peace. Seems impossible, doesn't it? But that time comes and it draws nearer and nearer. And the quick and easy way to do that is to change nothing. Now this, of course, doesn't mean that you don't call up and make an appointment or that you don't take the garbage out or all those silly things. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that you let that sit in your heart without translating it into rules and behavior. And you approach everything with the utmost gentleness and tenderness. You treat this world as if it were precious. And you touch it in every aspect quite, quite gently. And when you do that, and when you are kind to yourself when you are sick, or when you are in grief, or when someone has betrayed you, or anything else that has caused a shock to your life, when instead of trying to get rid of it, or out of it, or close it off more quickly, you simply say, yes, this is the way it is. Let me sink into this gently. Let me not try to escape it in any way, and let me bring peace to my grief, my insomnia, my sickness, my whatever it may be. Let me not try to get rid of it. When you do that, you are saying with your heart, 
in all of your heart, the truth is true. What is mere illusion is mere illusion. When we start fighting these things, we are making them into truth, and we are saying that truth is illusion. I will never leave you comfortless is the promise. You cannot experience that if you start with the premise, I am comfortless and I've got to get rid of the discomfort and I've got to do it now and I feel oh so guilty because I'm not trying hard enough to do it. And very often you do not help someone if you call them up and give them healing imageries or in other ways rally them against the forces of sickness and depression and what, or whatever else you judge should not be going on in their life. But if you say, my depression will last as long as it will last. My grief will last as long as it will last. This call will last as long as it will last. I will not concern myself with that. I will bring peace to my mind and to my body. Then, of course, your body does get well more quickly because your body is unquestionably an image of your mind. It is the reflection of your mind. And so, of course, a peaceful mind brings about a peaceful body, just as making yourself anxious and tense and waging war protracts the illness. And so in order to heal the illness, you stop trying to heal the illness. Do you see that? Because you are bringing peace, you're not trying to change what is not real. You're not trying to eliminate what's not even there. You're bringing peace to your mind. And this will bring peace to everything else. Hence, Agatha Christie. Well, what happened was I went over to Dr. Shaw and I said, I've, I've been sick uh, this last week. And uh, he said, oh, he said, what did you do? And I said, uh, well, I said, I read my first Miss Marple book. Oh, he said, that is excellent. <laughs> he almost jumped out of his chair and came over and shook my hand. <laughs> he could tell that I'm an old battler from way back, and I am. I was raised as a Christian scientist as a boy, and it is sort of instinctive for me to start battling these things. And I can tell you I get through them a hundred times more quickly now that I do no battle with these things. Do we have time for me to reach a couple of sentences from I mean, this is the dispensable church, you understand. Miss Bantry was dreaming. Her sweet peas had just taken a first at the flower show. The vicar, dressed in cassock and surplice, was giving out the prizes in church. His wife wandered past, dressed in a bathing suit, but as is the, as is the blessed habit of dreams, this fact did not arouse the disapproval of the parish in the way it would assuredly have done in real life. Now it goes on, talks about her dream for a while. This is the opening of the book. Uh, the Body in the Library is the name of it. The Body in the Library. People on a spiritual path should not read books like that, should they? Naughty, naughty, naughty. Now, she goes on and talks about that, you see, about the dream and suddenly, and then out of the dim green light, Mary's, Mary is the maid servant. This all takes place. They have many servants in England. Uh, every house has at least 10 or 12, as you know. 
Now, out of the dim green light, Mary's voice came breathless, hysterical. Oh, ma'am, oh, ma'am, there's a body in the library. And then, with an hysterical burst of sobs, he rushed out of the room again. Mrs. Bantry sat up in bed. Either her dream had taken a very odd turn, or else... Or else Mary had really rushed into her room and said, incredibly fantastic, there is a body in the library. Impossible, said Mrs. Bantry to herself. I must have been dreaming. She reflected a minute and then applied an urgent conjugal elbow to her sleeping spouse. Arthur, Arthur, wake up, Colonel Bantry grunted, muttered and rolled over on his side. Wake up, Arthur. Did you hear what she said? Very likely, very likely, said Colonel Bantry indistinctly. I quite agree. I quite agree with you, Dolly, and probably went back to sleep. (laughs) Mrs. Bantry shook him. You've got to listen. Mary came in and said that there was a body in the library. Uh, A a what? A body in the library. Who said so? Mary. Colonel Bantry collected his scattered faculties and proceeded to deal with the situation. He said, Nonsense, old girl, you've been dreaming. (laughs) No, I haven't. I thought so, too, at first, but I haven't. She really came in and said so. Mary came in and said there's a body in the library. Yes, but there couldn't be, said Colonel Bantry. No, no, I suppose not, said Miss Bantry. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> they, are, they go, they go dis- discuss this for page after page about whether or not there's a life. Finally, she tells him he's got to go down there. And uh, look, he said, you want me to go down there and ask if there's a body? And he said, this would be terribly embarrassing to go down there and ask if there's a body. She said, I don't think you'd have to ask if there's a body. <laughs> now, you see, what I discovered, uh, not having read this, is that many of the English mystery writers look at death the way children do. You see, this is not a horrible thing, a body in the library. And many of you actually laugh. Now, feel guilty. (laughs) And so, you see, it is spiritual to lie down in bed and open even, yea, a mystery and read it and have your little hot lemon drink there beside you and uh, your little uh, heating pad on your toesies. You see, this is perfectly all right to do that. So that's what you do if you get sick. A question concerning whether or not to discuss our own spiritual path with other people. Let me... uh, There's another question that I was going to get to later, and I think I can get yours and this other one at the same time. Um, I have made the mistake in a very big way, more than once in my life, of beginning some new way. Now, one of the things you eventually find is you don't need a new way. Whatever way you have home right now is perfectly fine. Go ahead and use it. But I used to skip from way to way to way. And every time I would, I would go out and talk about it. Now, another thing, I know this isn't directly part of your question, but it's a part of another question I was going to get to. Another thing that will happen to you, if it hasn't already started happening to you, is not only will you take up your way 
And not only will your wife satisfy you so deeply and make you so happy, and not only will you look over at your friend and say, if only they would do these few simple things, they could be happy, because of course that's true. But just remember, they may not be ready yet to approach life that simply. This is, this is, a, this is a, an, e an eternity of training that we are bucking when we become so simple-minded as to say, I will live in the present and I'll walk through this day in peace and there is nothing else I have to do. Now, there, most people just are not ready to be that simple-minded. And if you have begun that, of course you know the blessing that comes from simplicity and from peace. And you know that a world begins opening up to you that you didn't even know existed. And of course you want to share this. But it is best not to do that. It is best not to even hint at it. If you are asked a direct question, by that's why I've told you not to recommend this church. Because what we want here is not few people. It's not, for, it's not for that reason that you don't recommend it. But what you want is people who come here who are of like mind and who unite in a single purpose. And when you start trying to go out and change people's mind and bring them into something, of course you don't have people who are quite ready to do that. And so, of course, you have, even within the very congregation itself, elements of conflict and discard and so forth, because people have been brought here kicking and screaming. And that, of course, does not help you and it doesn't help them. It was well-intentioned, perhaps, but it doesn't truly help. When they are ready to see, they will see that you have something. Until they are ready to see, they do not think you have changed. And all of your words will not convince them that you have actually changed. You are the same old, same old to them. And they can go right down the list and tell you how you are exactly the way you've always been. Because what you are seeing is not seen with the eyes from, from which they are looking. And you are beginning to see a something else that lifts you up and comforts you and is available to everyone. But you cannot make the blind see. You wait patiently for them to come to you. Now, another thing that will begin to happen to you is that you will start having what might be called uh, the experience of the gifts of the Spirit, psychic phenomena. It comes under a thousand different names. The names are not important. Don't be misled by the names. This kind of thing might happen to you. You might suddenly begin to feel a very close connection with the minds of the people around you so that suddenly you know if someone's going through a bad time. This may be one of the first things that happens to you. You become very sensitive and suddenly you realize so-and-so's in a bad place, although there hasn't been any external evidence of this. Your ego, of course, always wants you to rush out and do something about that. 
but you don't do anything about it. Another thing that may happen, except, of course, you bless them. And the very path that you are on shows you what a deep, deep gift this is to do nothing more than to bless them and to be there if they do, in fact, ask your help. You may actually begin to sense the presence of those who have died. Now, this is extremely weird to people who have not looked at that whole uh, situation. And then you also have a body of people who believe it. They haven't experienced it, but they believe it. And this is, of course, just like believing in uh, UFOs. It doesn't matter whether you believe in them or not. It doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. It's irrelevant whether you believe in God. Have you begun to experience God a little? That's relevant. And you can begin to experience God without believing in God. And so you might begin to sense the presence of those who have left. That may not happen. That's, that's fairly unusual. Another thing that may happen. You may begin receiving guidance in a more direct way. We are all receiving guidance. Every person on the face of this earth receives guidance. It comes in the best possible way for that individual. And you will recognize that. You will recognize the way it has come to you in the past. Even when you didn't think it was coming, it was coming to you. This very gentle voice, if you will, urging these lovely thoughts that are just dropped like precious jewels into your mind. But you don't even notice the dropping. But now your guidance comes in a more direct way. Maybe that is the thing that begins to happen. Maybe you begin to develop an ability to heal a little. Maybe that is what happens. Of all these things, and especially of the guidance, you must understand this fact. This is not a fact of truth. This is a fact of the world. Every time you talk about one of these things, you sully it. You rub a little of the world off on it. And it will not mean as much to you. It, it loses a little of its sacredness, its preciousness to you. Did Jesus gently whisper in your ear, that means so much to you? You have no question about it. You don't ask, how is that possible? But if you go out and talk about it, notice that it doesn't mean as much to you. It's a little bit shabby now. And you talk about it the second time and it's a little more shabby. And you make a production of it and pretty soon, for a while, you can't hear that whispering. Not because the whispering leaves you. Not because your guide, your teacher, your guardian angel, God, whatever you wish to call that which watches over you. Not because it deserts you. Because it would never desert you. But because you have got so much of the world swirling around in your mind. You have got so much ego involvement over this thing. That it's as if the gift is taken from you. I promise you it isn't taken from you. But it's almost that feeling. 
Now, this is nothing to be afraid of. This is simply the way of the world. Let these things happen in their own time. Do not attempt to increase any gift that you have begun to experience. Let me repeat that. Do not try to enhance your own strengths. Do not read books about it. I'm not saying you can't read a book about it for pleasure or something like that. But don't get caught up in trying to magnify this gift. It will come. It will expand in its own time. You will use it quietly and gently. And you will see it's no big deal. It's a part of your inheritance. Your heritage. Yourself. It is a part of everyone's self. It is natural. I can tell you, because so many people talk to me about these things, that you have no idea how many people can heal, how many people can hear a voice of a higher teacher, how many people can understand the, that uh, what's happened to someone or uh, who, who seems to have left, and all that kind of thing. This is far more common than you may realize. Most of these people have learned many, by sad circumstances, not to mention this anymore. If there is some one special person who you know will treat it with complete love, and if there seems to be a real good reason to talk about it, then perhaps you might mention a little of it. But watch this. Don't rush into this kind of thing. And so the answer to the question is, a spiritual path should not cause any distance between you and another person if you will go about your spiritual path in the utmost quietness and gentleness, not breathing a word of it to anyone unless you are sure they are ready to hear. A question concerning what to do when one becomes stuck in a teaching aid such as A Course in Miracles. All we need to do is to use what we understand. We do not need to use what we don't understand. And that goes, of course, for anything that's said here at the Dispensable Church. Don't try to use everything that's said here. Every time that we stop in any way on our path, it's because we're trying to use something that we don't need to use. You know enough truth. You have all the truth you need. Use what you do understand. Don't get stuck over some question. And so, many people get stuck in reading A Course in Miracles. And of course, what's happened is they, must ha they have to tell themselves something in order to get stuck. They have to tell themselves, uh, I don't understand this sentence here. Uh, I don't feel like I did this correctly. I didn't follow instructions correctly. There is no correct way to follow the instructions. There is no perfect way. You will never do one of those lessons perfectly. If you did one of them perfectly, you would have no more need for A Course in Miracles. And so, of course, you didn't do it perfectly. And, of course, you don't understand it. If you understood just one sentence, just one sentence on the page, you would now be in full, full communication with God and you would have no more need for a teaching aid. You'd have no more need for a set of books that tells you to forget the books and look to God because that's all it tells you to do. 
So don't get stuck. Just say, I'm going to do the course. And uh, if you want to make a few little gentle rules for yourself, make them. The one I did, and I wouldn't recommend this, I'm just telling you how I did it, was I said, I'm going to do this in a year. I don't care whether or not I do a lesson perfectly or not. I'll do it in a year. I didn't do it in a year. I did it in 367 days instead of 365. I don't know what happened to the two days. That's one way of doing it. I just simply did the next lesson the next day, and I went on. That's very simple. The beginning of the course states that you do not need to understand it. You don't need to even like it. <laughs> All you need to do is to apply it the way that it tells you to apply it. And, of course, this only takes, what, early lessons? I think it's two minutes a day or something like that, or a minute. Later, it's five minutes a day, something like that. I think there may be one place in there where there's a half hour. But most of the lessons are just very, very few requirements whatsoever. It just says, apply these, say these words to yourself when such and such a thing happens. That's all it tells you to do. It doesn't tell you to understand the words or like the words or think about the words. It doesn't tell you to judge the results of applying the words or anything else. It just says do them. So this is a good question because the answer is that no matter what seems to have stopped you on your way home, whatever it may be, all you have to do is use what you already understand. Go back to your basics. Look at the basic ideas that you already know, the little song in your heart, and do something simple and direct. And don't wait. And don't ask yourself questions. And don't think you have to get something figured out first. Just proceed. Just continue walking. Say, I'll understand that later. Continue walking. A question concerning whether or not our thoughts attract events. Do, do, do thoughts attract events? Yes, no, they do not attract events. No, that's, that is a misconception. It's a very wide misconception. And please never quote me on this. Do not correct someone and said, well, if someone tells you that your fears attract accidents and so forth, don't say, well, Hugh said that they don't. Because you're, you're totally misusing the teaching of this church if you do that. I, it does not attract. And let me, I'll answer that. I'll answer that. Now, this is, this, you'll lay a, a large burden off of your shoulders if you will not think along those lines anymore. That, uh, so, uh, that your mind is like some sort of magnet that can draw either money or poverty or illness or health or uh, good people or bad people or good jobs or bad jobs and all that kind of stuff. And I'll tell you why this is why you are ready to think on a higher level than that. I'm not saying that you cannot look at the world that way, because of course you can. But there is a higher way of looking at the world. And if you're sitting in this church, you're ready to hear it. And that is, you are not a body. And so what is this to which it is being attracted? Are you locked in some little fleshly cage and drawing things to you? Is your mind actually inside of a skull? Of course not. Of course not. So 
The fact is that this dream is all of one thing. And these kinds of statements start with the premise that we can judge the world and we can decide what is healed and what is not healed within the world. And so we think we already know what are the good things and the bad things in this world. We think we can actually name them. Money's good, for example. Is this true? Don't you see how many people have concluded that money is bad? And don't you see the evidence that they are looking at? Of course it isn't bad. It isn't anything. It's part of the world. Your body is not good or bad. Don't you know people who have decided that bodies are bad? That they've decided their own body is bad? Of course it's not bad. And you, of course, know people who have decided that bodies are good. And they go running after them most of their lives. And of course they're not good. They're not anything. They're part of the world. The world is all of one thing. It's as uniform as the dream you dreamed last night. What you want is to gently turn from the world and turn to God. Not turn away from people. But you want to turn to God. Now what is a little confusing about this is that as you become more peaceful then of course you do not set yourself up for as many illnesses and accidents and tragedies and this kind of thing that does not mean they will not befall you do you see what happened to Jesus Christ do you see what a painful death he died if someone died a death like this Today, I can tell you, many people on a spiritual path would be denouncing him, saying that something was wrong in his mind, that he had something that was very wrong in this person's life, that he would have died a death like that. Do you really think that Gandhi was so far lost in the ego that uh, he attracted an assassination? He drew this upon himself? course not this isn't the way it works it can't it, it is an interpretation and since the whole world is unreal you can interpret the world any way you wish so I'm not telling you that interpretation is wrong and that what I'm telling you is a fact what I'm telling you is ask yourself is this a truly helpful way to interpret what's going on around you that people attract their deformed babies and this kind of thing. This is not a kind and gentle way to look at the world. I can tell you if Dr. Sham can get pneumonia, there isn't anyone in this uh, auditorium today who is going to totally eliminate sickness. And why would you want to? Sickness is part of the world. You see, we think it's something to be avoided. Everything is sick in the world. Everything is an accident in the world. That doesn't mean that it's 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 laughable. You see, a, a body in the library can be laughed gently at. Illness can be laughed gently at. Many of the people in the East have learned to laugh gently at a death. They see it means absolutely nothing. In this part of the world, it's very difficult for people to see that. And of course, you would never want to tell someone who is in deep grief 
that this should be laughed at because they aren't going to see it that way and this would not be helpful. It would not help them to laugh at it. But what I'm saying is, obviously there are people who, who realize that the death of the body hasn't changed anything. And so, no. The answer is, I do not think it's a helpful way to interpret what's going on, to think in terms of creating reality, attracting things to you, because you have to judge the world in order to do that. You have to decide what's good and bad, and then you have to try to get the good things to come and the bad things to go. And what is the basis of this judgment? God is all there is. God is what is real. The love of your father is all you want. Don't start dividing the world up into what you want and what you don't want and concerning yourself with that. I'm not directing you, sir, in these comments. I'm just, I'm just talking about the question in general. There is a gentle, happy way to look at all these things, and that is, bless it all, surround it all in light. This is a world made without love. But that does not mean there has to be no love. Bring the love of God into everything in your life. Pour it all over your day and every activity. Pour happiness and relaxation and peace into your job, onto your car, everything. You do not have to be bereft of God. But if you look only at the world, you will be bereft of God, at least you will think you are. And so that is the only choice to make. And the only thing to attract your mind to is God. There is nothing that you wish to attract to you in this world, and there is nothing you wish to repel. You wish to fear nothing, run from nothing. You wish to walk gently on it all, flow over it like some gentle breeze, not breaking one little twig, but blessing it all. 